Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Wasanish people. Welcome, Welcome to, to the show. show. So, Ted, what are we talking about today? Well, today, Courtney, we're talking with Sam Liu, who is an assistant professor in the School of Exercise Science, Physical and Health Education. And Sam joined us um, two years ago now and is here having done a postdoc at UCLA. And prior to that is a transplanted Canadian from Toronto. So welcome, Sam, and we're really interested in the kind of work that you're doing because it sort of fits with some of this that we do with the podcast, and you're looking at uh, the effects of social media on health and well-being. So walk us into some of the things you're looking at. Great. Uh, thank you for having me here, first of all. It's, it's a great to uh, share some of, my, some of my research and what I'm doing with you guys. Um, well... My research focuses on how can we use social media and digital technology to promote health. And the way that uh, the field is going, how we're seeing it, is that the use of social media is really a double-edged sword. You can use it for good as well as uh, stuff not so good, as we see in the media with uh, some of the stuff going on with Cambridge Analytica and and users' uh, data and privacy-related issues. And American elections. Exactly. So with the, we, maybe perhaps we can talk on the good stuff first and mm -hmm. then how we can actually use social media um, to promote health and then we can look at some of the limitations of this uh, platform perhaps. Um, some of the good stuff, um, I call it good, um, is uh, social media definitely can create a sense of bringing people together. And I think that is particularly important to create a sense of support and perceived support. And we have done a few studies now looking at uh, whether we can use social media as a using Facebook, Instagram, or even our own uh, social media platform where people can chat and share their experiences. So using these um, modalities to to bring people together and share experiences. So we have done that with uh, people with uh, heart failure, um, people, uh, caretakers as another example. So bring people together and uh, allowing them to share some of the barriers they're going through uh, with their daily lives and s finding ways that we can then help them uh, using this, uh, uh, this, this platform. Um, so that's one of the ways we can use uh, social media to um, bring people together and promote health. But the second way of using social media is uh, more on a population level. So we can actually mine what people are saying online and using that information to predict disease outbreaks in certain different areas. Mm. And I think that is a really interesting way of uh, uh, using social media data. To give you an example, so um, we'd be mining uh, Twitter data, which is uh, um, uh, a social media platform allow people to share about 150 characters. Um, now it's a little bit more characters. Um, and then people can share about their uh, experiences, their views, and, and uh, their feelings. And what we do is uh, sometimes when you post on, on uh, or when you give a tweet, you can actually give a person's um, um, location. So we will mine that data 
uh, throughout entire North America, and then overlay that data with some other types types of biomedical data set. So one of the most recent studies we have done is with physical activity. So we will look at what people are saying online, so um, tweets related to physical activity, and, uh, and then the sentiment of the tweets. So whether the tweet was expressed as positive or negative or neutral. And uh, we will overlay that data with county level uh, physical activity uh, level, and we do find that there is a direct relationship. So the more you talk about uh, physical activity in a positive way within a county, uh, that's correlated uh, with the uh, county level's physical activity level. So. <clears throat> One of the implication or application of this technology is then we can create a real uh, time, uh, almost a monitoring program with uh, looking at where uh, are the areas that uh, has a low level of physical activity and uh, whether we can intervene at that uh, particular um, part of the um, uh, world. So that's one of the ways that we can use social media data. So have you ever, so you know now with the study that you did that positive, speaking to positive ways of physical activity in certain geographical areas can, is correlated. So it means that they're usually more physically active as a whole in that area. Correct. Um, have you ever tried to do it where, have you ever intervened yet? Um, very interesting. I think that's perhaps the next step. Yeah. Um, but there is definitely that social network effect or contagion effect uh, going on. Um, one of the earlier studies that came out was, I think it was 2014, where Facebook did a, 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 a study. Um, there were some concerns at that time when the paper was published, uh, some privacy and ethical concerns. But what the study basically, sh uh, what they did was... Uh, they manipulated um, your newsfeed so with either positive newsfeed uh, and negative newsfeed and see how people reacted to them. And when people are presented with more positive things, they're, they're showing more likes and people are more happy compared to people that uh, were shown newsfeed that are a little bit more negative. So there's definitely that contagion or social contagion uh, effect going on with the social networks. Mm -hmm. So I would suspect that it's a possible way that you can actually influence people's uh, behavior by showing them certain information. Have you... Um you're looking at physical activity. Is, has there been any exploration of this in terms of uh, mental health and, and, and well-being as well? I'm thinking about, uh, you know, whether there's any predictive value to um, the, the kind of social media flow, if that's the right word, or the, the data that are out there that might alert people to uh, enough anger and sentiment where it's going to result in an eruption where, well, to use the last week, someone walks into a synagogue right? and, and there's enough uh, sort of anti-Semitic feeling in that area that people could be alerted to, uh, to, to, to possible violence based on the information flow that you're mining through the, right. the, the social medias. Absolutely. I think uh, we have certainly done that with uh, Twitter data. Um, so a few years ago, one of the first studies that uh, we did was looking at uh, on an individual level. So depending on what people are tweeting, can we use what they tweet on a daily basis to predict uh, somebody's mental health outcome? So at that time, we are actually looking at um, uh, stress level. 
And um, what we found is that if you're going to uh, tweet things that are more negative uh, with a negative sentiment, uh, you're more likely to be stressed out. So some of the other researchers actually also looked at uh, other features that we can extract from uh, Twitter data. So uh, keywords, so certain keywords associated with depression. So if people mention anything related to uh, medication, a depressive uh, depression medication or anxiety medication. And other interesting is looking at the social capital of a person. So they determined that uh, uh, by the number of likes. So if you're going to post a comment, how many likes do you get? Uh, and what is the ratio of the number of likes that you're getting relative to the number of people that are actually following you? So, and if we're going to plot that on a longitudinal um, time series or um, timeline, we can actually see whether there's a sudden changes with your social network and that could be a, a indication a changing of your mental health outcome as well that's so interesting and I think as you're, as you're talking about this all I can think is yet there's some really good applications that could come out of this mm -hmm. right um, and I'm you know drawing a correlation in my head between like the idea and and keep with me here. Um, but a lot of people in terms of GMO have a really, GMO has a negative connotation, right? Mm -hmm. When in reality, it's the way that that um, technology is being applied or utilized these days, it can be somewhat negative and detrimental to our so health. Just for our listeners that aren't familiar with GMO, right, sorry. I mean, it means... It means genetically modified organisms. And so, you know, when we genetically modify food, um, that can have, that can actually be quite a great technology to help us be able to deal with with um, issues with climate change and growing crop or crop issues and what ha have you. Talking about how, um, you know, you're mining data and you're looking at different ways that you can kind of um, use people's social media engagement to predict things like mental health states or what's going on in terms of physical activity and what have you. That study that you talked about with Facebook, I, rem I remember hearing about it and my relationship with Facebook changed because they did not tell people that they were that they were doing this to their news feeds, right? Mm -hmm. They went ahead and they changed their news feeds without consent. And, and when we know that there's a correlation between what your news feeds show in a positive and negative light and your own how it impacts you and that's not being notified, there are some serious ethical and moral issues that are raised with that. And so I wonder how what your thoughts are in relation to this work is really important. And I think it's if it's used in a really beneficial way um, for the well-being of people who are involved, I think that it could actually Im impact and increase people's uh, happiness and health, right? Um, and at the same time, you know, this could also be um, something that is done at the detriment of the people who are engaging in these social media platforms. So how do you kind of navigate that ethical, moral minefield, for lack of a better word? Right. Um, well, with any technology, I see it as it really depends on how you how you are actually using it. It's kind of like a car, right? It could be used for good things and bad things. Um, the way that I see it, um, I think I'm very lucky in a way that uh, I'm in a position where um, we have 
a lot of safeguards along the way. So every time when we do research, we have the research ethics board that we can consult with uh, what is ethical and what's not and whether we're following certain protocols and policies. And uh, and also we have, I'm working with uh, great colleagues where we can actually discuss what is uh, possible and what's not. And I think it's important for researchers in this field um, to whatever we do, whatever data we mine, it's important to let the users know that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are actually, uh, there's, there needs to be some type of transparency and not just embedded in a fine print. And I think this is where things might have gone wrong with some of the social media platform like Facebook. And I, I believe maybe it's not their, obviously not their intention to harm anybody, but it's just the consequence and how people are using the data and, 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 there may be no oversight of how the data are actually being used. Sam, one of the things that you're looking at is the effect and the impact of all of this, um, both the software, like the, 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 the social media that flows through the device, mm-hmm. these devices and the devices themselves and the impact that they have on young people. Because kids today uh, are born into a world where smartphones are a fact of life. Um, us in the, in the room uh, were born at a time when smartphones didn't yet exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a different world now. And we know that there's impacts on people's well-being from this technology. What are you, what are you finding there when you're looking at that? Right. Um, I think so definitely there is a relationship between social media use or digital smartphone use and, and health outcomes. So the general trend is that the more you use it, the more social media that you use, um, you have a higher symptoms related to depression, anxiety, and overall well-being. Um, but the relationship is not as linear as when once we um, we have thought. Um, what we find is that some individuals, so if you have a tendency that you're more likely to compare with other people, and if you have a lower self-esteem to start off with, um, the, the, you have a higher risk of uh, having a higher symptoms of depression, anxiety when you're using social media uh, networks compared to people that have a higher self-esteem or, or a lower likelihood of comparing yourself to other people. And that's what we found with um, uh, university students. And, uh, and, and um, so your, the age range is about 18 and, and 25. And, but Speaking of kids, and, and, and I think this is really a, a new area of research and we're kind of just exploring that. And um, especially now that the time point for a kid or a children to get cell phones is around middle school, so grades six and seven and eight. And from our surveys um, just within Victoria, um, BC, what we found is that um, 60, about 65% of the children, um, grade six, are getting... Uh, their first cell phone. Um, and then by grade eight, um, about 90% of um, the children or the students um, have a personal cell phone. And from our baseline data, what we've seen is that um, the more usage, so two hours and plus with cell phone usage, um, there is a reduction or a decrease in sense of well-being, friendship, and their ability to pay attention or attention span, essentially. 
And by two hours, do you mean two hours a day, <clears throat> two hours a week? Uh, so on average, uh, about two hours per day. Per day. Per day. So that's so the current guideline for screen time in general, it's uh, it's uh, for for children five and plus is two hours per day. So we are accounting two hours per day in terms of uh, cell phone or smartphone use. So that's what we and, and we're seeing that consistent pattern both with weekdays as well as uh, uh, weekends. So so that's the recommended. What's what's the average? What uh, nationally or, or even regionally? What do you, what do you know is the number of hours a day that adolescents would spend on a in front of a screen? Right. So what we're seeing with our data is about forty uh, percent of the kids are using them um, um, above or beyond two hours um, per day on average with smartphones. So we don't have uh, we don't have a concrete number with uh, other types mm-hmm. of screen use, but mm-hmm. with smartphone alone, it's about two hours and plus. And kids are doing what we found with the two hour period window. They're spending it on social media um, and um, um, playing um, video games. And um, and also conducting calls and text messages. Yeah, because you know they're probably not not doing a ton of emails. <clears throat> no, because when I think about my phone and when I do a lot of what I have is you know text messages or emails or doing all of that stuff, and it's like my b- baby computer on the go. But at, for adolescents, mm-hmm. uh, I can't imagine that they're doing work related or school related things on those cell phones. Yes, yeah. So I mean, with the biggest challenge right now, I think with the school system is a, a lot of schools are trying to figure out how they're trying, how are they going to manage this 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 a cell phone policy or program within their school, and we can see with. The different school boards around the country, some schools have chosen to completely get rid of their cell phones. You can't bring cell phones to school. And some classrooms or some schools have totally embraced the cell phones use. So they were actually incorporated as a teaching tool. And then there are also some other schools that are um, they're leaving it at the discretion of teachers. Um, but what we're finding, what's interesting is uh, uh, one of the schools in Victoria, they're actually trying to introduce um uh, a cell phone education program for the children, and we're very uh, we, we lucky in the sense that we we were able to capture or measure what happened before and after um, they have implemented this uh, cell phone education program. And what we found we did during that period of time, so we measured uh, in ba- at baseline the number of students that are we call addicted to smartphones and uh, that percentage of individuals that are addicted or have scored really high in cell phone addiction actually decreased a little bit um, um, after the intervention. So our next step really looking at this whole research is we want to try to find a control school or school that we can compare our results to. So so to see whether uh, cell phone education made a difference relative to some other schools with similar background or characteristics uh, where they don't have that particular uh, option. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because clearly moving forward now in life, you know, cell phones, screen times, AI, all of these, like we're at a, we're at a phase where this is going to continue to expand and become more prevalent and embedded in society, right? We're not, we're not going back, we're going forward with that. And so trying to figure out how to, how kids and adults even can figure out how to utilize those tools in a healthy way is really important. And like you said, it's not linear. And so everybody is a little bit different. Exactly. And so that makes it a little challenging. It is. It is. And and I think um, it's important to, especially if you're getting the cell phone for the first time, I think it's important to teach the kids self-regulation skills and how you can actually um, 
and limit your use or use your cell phone in a safe way, safe safe uh, smartphone usage. Mm-hmm. You know, safe and and healthy and intelligent way. I, I think one of the drawbacks of 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 this, I think, is you know you had mentioned it's a double edged sword, and you talked about how it, it can be used to bring people together, and you gave some little micro examples of how. Um, people who have had heart attacks or people who have special interests around health and wellness can create communities. But I think the 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 sort of the, the negative side to that is that it brings people together in ways that are um, we've got these giant communities now where people are aligned with one particular political viewpoint or mm-hmm. another. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing in the middle anymore. It's these massive uh, communities where people are just shouting at one another with lots of vitriol and lots of hate and lots of disrespect, as opposed to uh, having this this platform where we can come together and have reasonable debate and do it in a way that's respectful and, and evidence-based as opposed to just the latest bit of whatever news feed happens to be flowing through Facebook. Factual or not. Right. So that's the downside of bringing people together around um, kind of this um, false information. Right. Especially with the credibility of the information. I think that's one of the limitations actually with social media. And especially now, as you mentioned, um, our newsfeed is definitely tailored. Absolutely. Depending on your interests. So there might be some bias in what you're seeing. Right. (laughs) And so is social media, is, is YouTube considered a social media platform? Yes. Okay. Because I have nieces and nephews and a lot of friends who have kids. And what I've noticed with them, and this is a new trend that shocked me, is they're actually watching YouTube channels of Mm -hmm. kids who are their age doing things like playing Minecraft or doing what have you. Um, And that's it's it's very popular. And I did not know about this until about a year ago. Um, And I was blown away by like these young, young kids. Like we're talking like five to... 12, mm-hmm. um, who have their own YouTube channels. Right. And I, are like having these conversations with these kids. Yeah. Um, and we don't know. Like I sat down and watched one of the videos and I was like, okay. Some of it is, you know, very reminiscent of, you know, my nephew. <laughs> one of my lovely nephews is like, he's like nine now, but he yeah. was watching these forever, him and yeah. his sister. Um, and it's interesting in some mm-hmm. ways because there's, there's a real community online in that, in that sense. But, the struggle that his dad is having is how do you how do I monitor that? Right, right. Yeah. Unless I'm sitting there watching, yeah. And it could be rated G, or it could be you know I know there are parental controls in place, but we still don't know what the content in that is, right? And so speaking of ways that you know we shout at one another, and we don't get heard. You don't you don't know what you're getting on yeah. these things. Yeah, and I think you raised a really interesting point about the popularity of YouTube uh, among younger. Uh, kids, because when we did our survey, we asked the students what type of social media that you're using. YouTube was actually wasn't one of the choices that we provided. We just put others and they can put whatever they would like. And YouTube actually came up multiple times. And and to us, it was quite surprising that kids are accessing it at such a young age, grade six and grade seven. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So it's definitely something that we need to look into in ways we can... um, provide guidance maybe for the parents on how they can limit um, their, their views. Yeah. I want to come back to the uh, your studies around uh, school use. Mm-hmm. 
um, I have a, a couple of graduate students who are looking at how they can uh, come up with guidelines that, that they can share with parents and other teachers around sort of wise use of these technologies. And as a researcher who's looking at this, what, what would be some of the, the the guidelines or even the recommendations that you would, would give to teachers and to parent groups around mm-hmm. children and, and technology use? I think first is uh, probably recognize uh, there's, there needs to be awareness and recognizing that there is uh, a potential problem with uh, excessive use and how that can impact a person's uh, health and well-being. And second, I think um, setting um, boundaries uh, and I think that's really important. So setting certain boundaries around uh, cell phone use and social media use around the house, uh, around their daily routines. So, for example, um, one of the boundaries you can set uh, no cell phones or social media at dinner tables. And this is a, f- a family time where you can share your experience throughout the day and, and talk about uh, your uh, daily routines. I think that's important, uh, setting boundaries. And the third I think is we need to look at uh, what how people are using social media as a whole because um, one of the consequences of using social media is uh, uh, one we do felt validated in a way every time we get a like on social media or uh, but also um, you can people can get uh, as depressed or or sad. When you compare yourself to others uh, uh, very often. And, and the thing about social media is people are only posting the good things, mm-hmm. right? It's a kind of like the highlight reel. So it's important to recognize that, uh, that what you're seeing on social media um, is not someone's daily life. It's you only getting the highlights. So... Um, I think to recognize that uh, what type of content you're seeing that makes you uh, perhaps sad or or anxious is really important. And once you recognize these type of content, then maybe you can substitute that with something else that's more positive and motivational for you to view. So I think that's one of the other things. Um, so so um, first is um, obviously recognizing there's a problem. Second, setting the boundaries. And third is to actually looking at how you're using social media and digital device as a whole um, and f- identify areas where, where it makes you change your mood and, and substitute something else for that. Yeah, it's really, it's something that I struggled with um, and continue to have to monitor because I find that my, the more that I use social media, my anxiety creeps. Um, The more I use social media, my productivity sometimes can decline. Um, And uh, I have to constantly, even though I know, right, that like I'm not comparing my life to someone else's highlight reel and I have a great life um, and I'm very happy about where I am. But it's sometimes when you're seeing like, Mm -hmm. oh, this person went to Italy and oh, that person went to Japan and did all this great things and oh, that person is doing that and, you know, they're on the top 40 under 40 and I haven't hit that yet and la 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 and it's you know it just reminds it sometimes I get caught up in that game right because Absolutely. I think that we have some of that within society where we're taught to be competitive and to mm-hmm. you know overachieve and that's kind of my DNA a little bit so you got to strike the right balance yeah almost, and right? so what I do now is I'm very intentional about like when I go on YouTube I either play motivational videos um, or I look at um, different types of people that I know that I can kind of engage my brain or I watch rescue
rescue videos, mm-hmm. um, animal rescue videos, because puppy videos, right? Yeah. As, <laughs> when you said UCLA, I was like, oh, hope for pause in UCLA. I wonder if he met Eldad. Um, but it's one of those things that I have to constantly monitor, and I have to. And so I actually just got an update because I I do have an iPhone, and I got an update, and it has like screen time options now that are new. Absolutely, I'm yes. loving that. Yes. Right, because it's a and, a and it's a built-in accountability measure for me. So I can go and I can check, and I'm like, oh, well, maybe that's why you haven't been so productive today. Mm-hmm. You spent an hour and twelve minutes on social media. Yeah, I mean, and also another thing I think people need to realize: don't be too hard on yourself about. I mean, these devices, as well as these social media platforms, they have special engineers, attention engineer, they call it, to design a way that keeps you using their product. Yeah. So one of the classic examples, the endless scrolling, right? Like you can just keep scroll down the content. It never ends, right? And and they keep recommending or tailor what you are interested in and they keep feeding you that information. Obviously, you're going to uh, keep scrolling and, and just see, that, see, see what's there. That's a really interesting observation because I've found just in the last few months, um, you know, and I use my phone from to get Google News. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right; it just never ends. You can scroll and scroll and scroll, Thanks. and it mm-hmm. almost on the fly. It seems to be throwing up news stories yeah. based on things you've already clicked on. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it used to be you picked up the newspaper and there's a finite amount of content you can read it from cover to cover and you're done. Right. Uh, or you can a... skip some sections, but but on a screen it just keeps coming yeah. at you. And there's at no you. stopping queue for you. Yeah. Well, yeah, I even uh, heard a report that talked about how the colors of an, of themselves like on your screen and in your games and all that stuff can are actually engineered and tailored to keep you engaged. Um, so actually on a I switched my phone to grayscale uh, just to see what would happen for mm-hmm. me and my connection to my phone dropped. Hmm. Um, it was really crazy hmm. um, and my anxiety decreased like those little red notification things I yeah. hate them and I have to get rid of all of them or else I get like I have ang- I get anxious um, so have that FOMO yeah well or even like oh gosh I gotta do something mm-hmm. I gotta do something I have a girlfriend who has like 23,000 emails in her inbox notifications um, mm-hmm. because she just doesn't like click them off and even watching her like seeing that on hers I was like I, I, <laughs> I'm gonna have a boundary about this but I wanna fix that for you so for me like going into grayscale and having that removed mm. and kind of being able to see it, um, you know, in black in in a gray format made it easier for me to not get it as attached to it, which yeah. I thought was crazy. Mm. Like even the color yeah. of it, or even the the way that it's engineered and Absolutely. all of that is designed to keep designed. you right there and focused. On yeah, it. especially Instagram now with the short videos. Yeah, I mean, five seven seconds. You can watch a lot of those yeah. Instagram rabbit holes. Yeah, I, I actually shut down my Facebook account. Did you some time ago? Just because I, uh, well, a couple of reasons. You know, one, there's the, um, the the exposure to of yourself to this large corporation that has you know over five thousand engineers working on, mm-hmm. as you said, ways to keep you engaged and to and to you know involve you in their their product and the things they market. But the other was I I just got tired of catching myself reading posts and reposts and things that other people that were friends of mine, they were friends of friends of friends had, had thought were important. And, you know, after 15 minutes of looking at this stuff and thinking 99% of it is irrelevant and I really don't need to put that stuff into my head. 
or have my eyeballs looking at those ideas, uh, it just turned out to be a huge time waster, mm-hmm. not to mention an inbox filler. You know, you yeah. every day you open your inbox and here's 15 or 20 things that other people who have some Facebook connection to you have been sent to you mm-hmm. via Facebook. Yeah. And I, I just got, it was like spam and junk mail in your, in your, your physical mailbox. And I just said enough. And, and I've been much lighter since I've ended that mm-hmm. connection. Mm-hmm. What are your, so- am I able to ask what your social media uh, habits are? Um, are you comfortable yeah. sharing that? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I use, well, I use uh, Instagram and Facebook and I try using Snapchat as well. Just, I think as part of my job, I need to stay on top of social media and understand what each platforms um, um, are, are doing and what their capab- capabilities. Um, I do find uh, I keep uh, my Instagram or my social media uh, fairly low key. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons I, I agree with you, sometimes I do find it kind of weighs me down a little bit to seeing what all my friends are doing and the sense of comparison. So, so recognizing that for me, um, so not one of the ways I kind of deal with it is kind of follow, um, or, or, or sh- kind of shift who I follow, mm-hmm. uh, follow things that I'm interested in. So for example, basketball, you know, I, I enjoy watching the Raptors and the Warriors. So I follow them, ESPN. Um, so follow things that I, I am interested in rather than, um, fill my newsfeed with, uh, things that can weigh me down. Mm-hmm. So part of what you were talking about is you were talking about boundaries with social media, Sam. And so um, thinking about that, because when I think about the prevalence of social media or engagement, you know, we see that in the form of a cell phone, right? When we're walking around or when we're having conversations or when we're studying or whatever that is, when you're at work and your phone buzzes and lights up and all these notifications, um, there are, I think, the boundaries between where we can have connection in real life and where we connect with the cell phone can be somewhat muddled. For example, um, for me personally, when I go out for dinner with friends, if I go out for dinner with friends and I know that there are people who cannot get off of their phone, we play a game where the cell phones go all together face down on the table and the first person to take their cell phone off has to pay for the whole dinner. And so we do. And so that's a game that we play. And I play, and that's kind of how I set it up because, and I think a lot of people have talked about this and our wonderful uh, sound engineers talked about this, how, you know, you can be having a conversation with someone or you can be doing something with someone and the phone distracts everybody, right? The phone distracts you, the phone distracts them. Having phones on the table is quite common these days. So what are your thoughts on that? Mm, I think that kind of goes back to what we we're talking about before about uh, ways to decrease usage and uh, of uh, smartphones or social media i think setting boundaries is really really important but i think that the how you set the boundaries is 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 really dependent on you and what you think is is uh is the right amount of barriers that you're setting yourself up um, between you and, and and social media and i think if you're interacting with somebody uh, you know, in a room, one-on-one, face-to-face. I think it's definitely important to shut out your smartphone, um, put it on airplane mode, because that can definitely disrupt the flow that you are uh, having or making a connection with the other individual. Um, I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, dinner time is a great way to set boundaries. Uh, I think that is really important. Um, and I think we need to 
uh, start this uh, idea of setting boundaries with social media and, and, and smartphones early on with, with the children and when they're still kind of learning the self-regulation skills. When is it good, appropriate to use cell phones and, and social media when, when it is not? And we do that with other behaviors uh, all the time. Um, in a classroom, for example, um, when's the right time to put up your hand or you know, f- um, bring food into, into the lecture hall. There's some rules around that. And um, so, so definitely, I think, setting boundaries and creating that boundaries early on is, is really important. Yeah, and I, I guess it's always been the case with different technologies. I remember growing up and uh, dinner time was a time for uh, people to gather around the, the, the table and have conversation. And, and yet I can remember going to other people's houses as a kid and, um, and be shocked to find that the television mm-hmm. plays through dinner. And, or some people sit in front of the television and watch dinner. And, it, and there wasn't that, that same sense of routine that, that I grew up with. And we'll see the same with, with cell phone technologies, I'm sure. Absolutely. It's interesting to, to talk about... Um, you know, how to set up those boundaries. For me personally, if I tell myself that I'm not allowed to do something, I want to do it. Mm. Um, you know, I'm trying to eat healthy and there were donuts at work last night that were dropped off and I don't even like donuts and I wanted one so bad I could taste it. <laughs> um, so I think it's something like that. I had a woman named Flossie Baker who I facilitate with from time to time. And she said to people, I understand that uh, we need to be accessible and I understand that we need at some point to be able to utilize our smartphones, but I would invite you to do what's necessary so that you can still engage with who we are and where we are in this moment and still remain accessible. So whether Mm -hmm. that's to put your phone on silent, whether that is to turn your phone off, whatever feels right for you, but I'd invite you to be present in this moment. Mm -hmm. And I had that moment of being like, Maybe I should say that to myself more often. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Maybe I should invite myself that when I go and I sit down in a room with people to say, okay, Courtney, so are you expecting an important phone call? Mm -hmm. Are you expecting something that you need to deal with right now? If not, maybe maybe you can look at actually engaging with what you have in front of you and letting this go to the side for now, Mm -hmm. right? And And in doing that in the last bit, I've started to realize that part of... Part of this, me being attached to my cell phone, is absolutely mandatory. I manage three inboxes. Um, Mm -hmm. I have three different roles that I do besides grad school. So I totally get that I need to be uh, accessible to that. The flip side of it is I think I'm somewhat addicted Mm -hmm. to that notification or I think I'm somewhat, there's something else there. It's not just that I'm accessible. At 7 o'clock at night on a Thursday, I probably don't need to be accessible to anyone but a phone call, you Mm -hmm. know, and I have for certain people and I have, there's great things on cell phones now where you can do downtime and off time and silent Mm -hmm. mode and, um, do not disturb, but you can allow people to be in on it. So I think utilizing for me, I've started to utilize those tools more, Mm -hmm. um, because I didn't actually realize that they existed as much as like, there are measures that are put in place with these things. Absolutely. And some of the measures are kind of, uh, for, for example, do not disturb. It just goes on, uh, in the background or, some phones will allow you basically ignore all the phone calls while you're driving. So automatically will detect that you're in a car uh, because of, because of the acceleration and and uh, it will just uh, ignore all your messages and uh, phone calls. So there are measures. I've noticed in the last couple of months, both Apple uh, computer with its screen time mm-hmm. as part of the new uh, iOS and, and Google now has this initiative they're calling digital well-being, I think, mm-hmm. or digital wellness. Um, you know whether there's that those 
the appearance of those isn't something of a of a smoking gun, perhaps that the that these large technology companies are now beginning to realize um, that what they've created has some significant mm-hmm. downsides as well. Absolutely. I think researchers are, are definitely catching on as well, because if you look at kind of the overall trend of this research um, back in early 2000s is more about, hey, how can we use digital technology to promote health? So people are coming in with all these different types of apps and designing apps and web based programs. And I think now uh, a part of this conversation is also important for research to realize, hey, what are some of the implications of this usage um, and and how does it actually impact our well-being? Is it actually helping us with excessive amount of usage? Yeah. It's, it's like a climate thought being the 100 year after the fact um, rethink of internal combustion engines. Absolutely. You know, what's 100 years down the road, are we going to look back at the emergence of this and say, oh, if we'd only known? Yeah, that's a really good analogy. Yes, yeah. yes. I agree. And it's good to know that researchers are out there who are doing this work in a way that isn't, you know, I I really, really encourage um, and support research in institutions that aren't connected to, you know, for example, Google doing research on the benefits or the detriments of of their platform. Mm -hmm. I'm not always going to have a lot of confidence in that because they have an objective, they have Mm -hmm. an agenda, Mm -hmm. right? So being able to have someone like you who is doing this with an open mind to be able to say, I really want to know what's going on here. We want to get the data. We want to correlate the data. We want to figure out what's happening before and after intervention episodes. Mm -hmm. We want to figure out what we can do to make this better for the people who are utilizing it Mm -hmm. is such powerful work because in some ways I I think that it's going to be that that allows us to really figure out a way to use social media in a way that benefits us, right? Not to our detriment, because there is really beneficial things. I keep on thinking about the Arab Spring um, and how that was so influenced by Facebook and social media in ways that I think is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Um, So to be able to have researchers who are willing to try to work um, towards and and showing us the data so that we can work towards better ways of utilizing these tools are really important, especially for the kids who are are coming up in this world. Yeah, especially for the kids now that they're having this access and and uh, there's definitely need to set some type of boundaries there. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sam, thank you for a fascinating half hour. We really uh, covered a lot of territory here and it's and it's so uh, timely and relevant that um, I'm sure people will really have uh, taken a, a lot out of this conversation. So we appreciate you coming in. Yeah, and you have a website, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, that has some more information about all this and all that great jazz. Yes. Um, so we'll put that on a link below this podcast um, just so if people are interested, they can they can take a little link to Well, you. thank you very much for having me here. Thanks so okay. much for being here. Great, thank you. Thank you. Learning Transforms is brought to you by the Faculty of Education and the Association of Graduate Education Students. Learning Transforms is produced by Julie Remy. Sound design is by Xavier Arujo. Special thanks to Sam Liu. I'm Ted Reekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>